Our Truth Encounter study leader, Dave Wurtson, concludes our study on Your Kids and Jesus as we look at the laws of cause and effect in disciplining our kids. Dave? Gail, when she was about 12 years old, uh, she started really growing. She had beautiful long blonde hair that stretched way down her back, and she began to grow tall to about 5 foot 8. She had beautiful legs, and as she started moving to the seventh grade, she was way ahead of her classmates. And there were about three or four other girls that were with her in middle school that started maturing a lot quicker than the other girls, and they started really hanging around together. And they started dating some of the high school guys, and her her mom really wasn't too happy about it. Her mom really wasn't happy about some of the musical groups that she was listening to that you know, talked a lot about, uh, about rejecting what your parents had to say, talked a lot about uh, sexuality in, a, in an immoral way, and, and you know, she was just constantly plugged in with earphones. Gail just wasn't listening to her parents, and you know, her, I'm sure her mom went to her pastor and said, what do I do with Gail? And you know, she's really not responding. The door started slamming in her house. Anybody ever have those experiences? You know, Gail would, would just blow up at her mom and say, Mom, you're just so old-fashioned, and I'm just so tired of you trying to control my life. Barbara over here, you know, I can do what I want to do. She does what she wants to do. Her parents stay off her back. And so Gail would just, just blow up at her parent, and sometimes she'd even cuss out her parents. She'd slam the door in her bedroom, and she'd walk into her bedroom, and her mom just throwing up her hands in exasperation. Her dad had left. It was a single-family home, and so her dear mom didn't really have much of a background and a backup for her. And there, she wasn't, her mom wasn't involved in a church family where there could be some other men that could begin to develop some relationship and try to you know, give some input to Gail's mom. And so she's just kind of out there by herself. By the time Gail was about 15, she just literally exploded completely. She didn't slam the door to her bedroom. She slammed the front door of her house and just took off. She was raised up in North Dallas, and she just took off and just started living on her own. She moved in with some friends. There were some college girls, and she was just having a blast. I mean, she would go down to the West End. She'd go to Deep Ellum, and, uh, man, she you know, was able to get a job. And she was, I mean, Gail was just really flying high. I mean, she, by this time at 16, she now looked like she was about 21. And uh, some really sharp-looking lawyers, or about 32, you know, began at clubs to really start connecting with Gail. And, man, they took her on trips. They take her down to, down to Nassau, I mean, like to Nassau in the Caribbean. And they go down to Galveston and take these cruises. And Gail, you know, everything that she ever really dreamt she, was, she could have, she was living it. She was just really flying high as she moved up through into her 20s. And she was enjoying just everything you want to enjoy. And she remembers thinking, you know, my, my mom didn't have any idea what she was trying to tell me. All this biblical stuff and all this cynical stuff and all this Jesus stuff is just no way for me. And she, in fact, when she went out to parties and they started drinking everything, they would just mock all these Bible thumpers and these people that, you know, believe in the scriptures being the inspired word of God. She remembers, you know, just laughing at that kind of stuff and thinking about, man, how she left that all behind and now she's doing her thing. Gail is a typical young woman that thinks that there isn't any blueprint there's no design. At Christmas time, one of the essential things about the Christmas story is that wise men, we don't know how many wise men there are, it wasn't until 600 uh, AD, 600 years after the fact that, we, that you have Melchior and Balthazar and uh, the, the wise men that begin to have names and they begin to be three wise men. We actually don't know how many wise men. We're not exactly sure 
exactly where they came from. They came from the east. Well, east of Jerusalem, east of Bethlehem, is a pretty broad area. I mean, it could be Russia, it could be uh, Iraq, it could be India, you know, we're not really, it could be Arabia, and there's all kinds of guesses. A lot of guesses that they might have come from Babylon, the area of modern-day Iraq. And maybe Daniel's testimony, you know, took root in the wisdom of Babylon, and there were wise men down through the centuries that followed uh, his wise counsel and were looking for that star in the east. But one of the major things in the, in, the, in the Christmas story of Matthew 2 is that wise men, and I think one of the reasons why Matthew isn't clear is that he does want us to have kind of the feel that wise men, wherever they come from, wherever you find wise men, they come to Jesus. What I want to teach you today is that when we read about wise men coming to Jesus, what it's expressing to us is that when God gave the gift of his son, wisdom came to live among us. One of the names for Jesus is that he is the wisdom of God. And what that means is that he is the one that embodies a skillful way to live. One of the things that the young people in this room and the the children in this room have to come to grips with is whether or not you're going to believe that there's any kind of a plan. There's any kind of an order. And that's a big debate in our culture. The secularist that's out there that doesn't believe in the Bible, doesn't believe in God, the secularist actually believes that you can create your own reality, that there's no skillful way to live. There's no better way to live, that you need to find out the way you're going to live your life like Gail. If Gail wants to slam the door on her mom and dad, on her mom and leave, you know, her home, she has the right to do that. If she wants to, you know, start messing around sexually, she has the right to do that. If she wants to get drunk at parties, she has the right to do that. Because the basic idea is that there's no better way to live. There's no skillful way to live. There's no overall blueprint. What I want to share with you is that that's a lie. In fact, I think that's a lie that's being powerfully exposed in our culture. I think there's been a mad, like as I came up through university in the late 60s, it was a very powerful lie on the campus. I think that lie is being exposed. I want the young people to realize that a lot of your professors at a secular university were raised in the 60s when I was raised, and they believe that stuff. They believe that there isn't any blueprint. They believe you create reality. But I want you to know that there's a tremendous reaction underneath that. The younger generation is coming along and saying, hey, wait a minute, that's a lie. And I want to talk to you today about how we know that it's a lie, and it's called the basic law of consequence. Wise people know that there is a blueprint, that there's a skillful way to handle your life in the way that you eat, in the way that you drink, in the way that you handle yourself sexually, and whether or not you lie, whether or not you steal, whether or not you yell and shout at people and slam doors in their face, and whether or not you scoff at, at things that should be treated with reverence. Everyone knows that those are very important issues to us, and the freewheeling person feels that there's, you can do all that stuff and nothing will happen. And I want to teach you today as we turn to Proverbs chapter 1, verse 20, that Proverbs tells us a basic thing. Not only like last week, it warns us of getting involved in a life in crime. This time, in a very general way, wisdom goes out and proclaims to us and teaches us about the law of consequence. In Proverbs chapter 1, verse 20, it begins like this. Wisdom calls aloud in the street. She raises her voice in the public square. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. In the gateway of the city, she makes her speech meaning no. My brothers and sisters, I want you to know that what I'm teaching you this morning, you need to take into the classroom. You need to take into your offices. And I want, I want to give you courage to be able to do that. Because a lot of people that really understand that there is a basic blueprint, there's a, a better way to do things, have been intimidated. 
You've been told that your, your religion and your beliefs and your, your commitment to the Bible is a private thing. Well, I got news for you, it isn't. And you say, Dave, how do you know that it isn't? Because right here, wisdom is portrayed as a beautiful woman. For those of you that are like, that are 12 years of age, as young men that are developing here, your testosterone begins to go surging through your body. You stop pulling the girls' pigtails. You start noticing that, you know, maybe it'd be nice to go to parties with them. And that's a great thing that starts to happen. One thing that happens in a, like a boy in the sixth grade suddenly has like a, a maybe a 25-year-old teacher and she is his teacher. And he suddenly finds out, man, she just, you know, is the center of his life. In fact, bad men and bad women will tell stories about young boys that are seduced by this older woman. In fact, Proverbs will talk about that. One of the things that all of you dads need to teach your young sons is that as they mature sexually, there will be an older woman that you learn about in chapter 9 called Lady Folly that will want to seduce your teenager, will want to take away their virginity, will want to get experience from these young, inexperienced men. But there's another side to that that Proverbs is very clear about. As you begin to grow, both fellas and girls, if they begin to grow in the ancient world, they would hold back their sexual drive. They didn't tell them, you know, just go and experiment, go and destroy all the mystery, don't have anything to look forward to. It's not any different than eating. The ancient world didn't say that. The ancient world said sexuality is a great mystery. When you find a person that you can be devoted to, you find a person you're going to live the rest of your life with, it'll be a marvelous thing. And you need to let the wisdom teacher prepare you for that. And as we're preparing you for the sexual mysteries, there's a lot of other mysteries we want to tell you about. And so Lady Wisdom in the book of Proverbs is presented as this beautiful, captivating, alluring, gorgeous older woman, mature woman, not older in the sense, but this beautiful woman that a young man's really attracted to. But she's morally pure. She's not going to use him. She's not going to hurt him. And she represents the pure side of his sexual drive. That's the idea here. Wisdom in Proverbs is presented as this beautiful knockout older woman that, is gonna, that wants to pull the young man into a life of wisdom. And he's going to decide whether he's going to be devoted to that kind of a woman or whether he's going to be divided to a foolish, silly woman and a destructive woman. And so as parents, you need to be aware that the Proverbs is using all this. I want you to know that it's not just Proverbs that uses that imagery. In Greek philosophy, wisdom is pictured as Sophia. Sophia is the goddess of wisdom. Now, in Greek pagan worship, they worship Sophia. Sophia is a goddess. And so you get all kinds of idolatry that begin to develop. And in your modern world, as you're reading, for example, about the Da Vinci Code, it's basically about Sophia and about wisdom and immorality and worshiping sexuality. And so you have, in a non-biblical sense, you have this idea that's permeating our culture way out there, and, and that always creeps in. But the Greeks also thought of Sophia as being like this ideal of the blueprint of the way that life should be lived. And a Greek philosopher like Plato or like Aristotle will teach you about the virtues. And William Bennett, for example, in his book on, on, uh, on morality, on the book of virtue, he's teaching you that old Greek philosophy. This is the skillful way to live. What I want to get across to you is this idea of wisdom was really strong in the Greek world. So when your secular friends tell you, you're nuts, you don't know how to live, there's nobody knows how to live any better than anyone else, you're part of a long tradition that says, wait a minute, even secular... Even Greek philosophers that didn't believe in the Bible knew that there was an order to life. There was a wisdom to life. 
In Egyptian society, let me just change gears completely away from Greece. Let's go down into Egypt. If you were an Egyptian boy, you would be trained in schools like in Proverbs. And they would teach you about something called ma'at, which is order. And ma'at was believed to be the design plan, the order that was behind all of Egyptian society. And it was the same kind of stuff about being pure, uh, not telling lies, not stealing, not scoffing at your parents, not scoffing at your teachers, learning to grow, letting older people that have already achieved a life of wisdom teach you. All that stuff was part of ma'at. The way that you spoke and learning how to use your tongue, learning how to, uh, how to wait and have self-control, all that stuff was part of ma'at. Proverbs is telling you here in this first verse of 120, it's saying that wisdom in Israel is the revelation of God. In Egypt, they didn't have the true God, Yahweh, that created the earth, giving them the true wisdom, but they were beginning to move. There was, there was revelation in their hearts through nature that was telling them there is Ma'at. The Greeks knew there was Sophia. If you're a school teacher, you're on strong grounds when you argue for teaching about the skillful way to live. And Proverbs can give you a lot of insight into how you teach about moral values by the law of cause and effect and by the way that things work out. If you're, if you're a research psychologist, look at what really happens in families. Study about the gales of the world. Do careful studies about them. And you're going to find out that you have a strong argument to say that things aren't up just for grabs. So that's what I want you to see. Wisdom is presented as this beautiful woman that's, that's seeking to pull the young man, and I'm going to include the young woman into this life of wisdom. What does she do? She doesn't just sit Sunday morning in Midlothian Bible Church. Look what it says. It says, wisdom calls aloud in the street. This is a loud voice. Wisdom is a preacher. The word that's used there is a loud, shrill cry. It's like she goes out into the street, and look where she goes. She raises her voice in the public squares. Where is this public square in the ancient world? At the head of noisy streets, she cries out in the gateway of the city, she makes her speech known. One of the neat things about going to Israel is you can go to the Damascus Gate. It's the, it's the gate that looks to the north. And the Damascus Gate has, uh, it has big rock pillars. But when you think of a gate, you think of a little white picket fence. You need to think in terms of a big open square like a big courtyard where everybody comes and gathers. That's the idea. The Damascus Gate has this big open courtyard. In fact, all the, the, the shopping mall of Israel is right inside the Damascus Gate. And you can get leather jackets. You can get chickens, dead chickens hanging up. And, and you can get dead lambs hanging up. And you can get uh, lamb that's, for, that's being broiled on a spigot that's turning. It's, it's a, just an incredible place. That's what I want you to think of. What Proverbs is talking about here is that this lady wisdom is right out there in our culture. It would be like the courtroom took place in the gates. In the ancient world, you would go to the gate of Damascus, and then just inside the gate, there would be like rooms where you would have the elders of the city sit. And often in the Old Testament, when they tell the story, they'll say they met with the elders in the gate. So courts took place in the gates. So if you're interested, like if young people in our church are thinking about going into law and going into the to jurisprudence and all that, we need to bless that. We need born-again believers that are in the gates crying out wisdom. You would have all the commercial stuff going on in the gates, like I share with you about the mall and, and all the bizarre the stuff that was going on. So if you're a business person here, you've been called. You've been called into the world of business. I believe that you'll probably have a lot more effective role in our whole area than I will. 
Because you're right out there as a business person. They respect you. They know you. You're thrown into all kinds of natural situations with unbelievers. And I want to give you the courage this morning for your kids' sake to proclaim the wisdom of God in the marketplace. Don't divide your Sunday morning biblical life from your business life because that's going to kill your kids and it will kill you. What I'm talking about, what I teach you from the word of God needs to live in the marketplace. If you're in education, we need some educators that stand up and say, hey, this is nuts. No discipline. Teachers that can't ask kids not to say four-letter words. Teachers that have to spend all their time trying to, you know, to, to grab kids by the way. They can't even grab them by the neck because you might be sued. That's not going to work. We just need some teachers that say, hey, this is crazy. For centuries, people have known that there is wisdom and there needs to be order, and I'm going to start crying out. And that's one of the things that's exciting me. We need to cry out with gentleness. We need to cry out with humility. We need to cry out with grace. We need to cry out with knowledge. But one of the things Proverbs is teaching us is that we need to cry out. And I want to say, moms and dads, last week I talked to you about how you warn your kids against a life of crime, how you warn your kids against drugs. And I talked about the danger of the promise of, of instant wealth and invincibility and the in-group and all that stuff. And I showed you the reality. Well, well mom and dad, you can't just teach that like in a Sunday school class. You need to live it in the marketplace. And I want to share with you, like even the, even the child psychologists that are they're trying to learn about how parents influence their kids, the way that you raise kids that do the right thing, that have social concern, is you do that as a parent. What you do as a parent is what produces the kids that you're going to have. So you need to be connected, not only teaching your kids privately, but they need to see you proclaiming in the marketplace. Like when I was a little kid, I'll never forget one of, the, one of the real highlights of proclaiming wisdom in the marketplace is my dad loved to do talk shows. And not every dad's going to get a chance to do that, but my dad did. My dad, when I was just like eight years old, would grab me by the hand, he'd make me carry his great big briefcase, and we would march, you know, go driving in New York City, go lumbering through the streets of New York, up into the top of the NBC building, and we'd walk into a studio, and there's Long John Nebel. Long John Nebel was a big talk show host. It went all over the United States. And he was like Larry King in that, only much more vitriolic than Larry King. When we walk in, I'll never forget the little eight-year-old kid. Man, I was scared to death. Long John Nebel was about six foot two. He had blonde hair. He kind of had a beard, I think. I remember, he just scared me, you know, just really scared me. And I was intimidated. He never said a word to my dad except sit over there. And he had my dad sit opposite him. Like when you do radio, you put on, back then you put on these big earphones. You still do it now today. They put a microphone on a stand right in your mouth just about. And then the talk show host is right across the table looking at you right in the eye. And he never said a word. Five minutes went by and he, he just got my dad all wired up. His engineer made sure everything was all right, did a little sound check. And then suddenly the, the green light came on saying, we're on the air, coast to coast, especially through the Big Apple. And I'll never forget Long John Neville looked at my dad and said, JC. So what's the big deal, Jack Wurtzen, about JC? And I'll never forget, I'm thinking about, first of all, as an eight-year-old, going, JC, is that the bathroom or what, what is that? <laughs> And my dad just settled back and he smiled at Long John. He said, you know, for 18 years of my life, that's the way I treated J.C. Jesus Christ, 
with someone that I used to cuss when things got really bad and when I had done something that was messed up. But I want you to know, Long John, when I was 18, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died on the cross for my sins, who rose again, came into my life, and my life has never been the same again. And thousands of your listeners across this land have had Jesus Christ come to live in their life. My dad was fearless. You heard of Madeline Murray O'Hare, my dad, on a big station in, in Chicago. When Mary was at Moody Bible Institute, my dad debated Madeline Murray O'Hare right on nationwide TV, the biggest station in Chicago. They had more calls. They had thousands and thousands of people light up the switchboard. And they, my dad debated back and forth with Madeline Murray O'Hare about should we have, you know, about belief in God and against atheism. My dad was fearless. The debate really went, to be honest with you, even though I'm very biased, I think my dad won, to be honest with you, it probably was a draw. Madeline Murray O'Hare was a very skillful debater. But I'll never forget when they opened it up for calls, one dear girl called up. She said, I'm 18 years old, Madeline Mary Hare. Do I understand that what you've told me, that if I follow your path, if I do what you want me to do, that I don't have to listen to anybody, that I can find my own way to live? If I want to experiment with drugs, it's okay for me to do that. If I want to get drunk, it's okay for me to do that. I'm going to find real freedom just really doing my own thing. And Madeline Murray here just took the bait this 18-year-old girl gave to her and said, that is exactly right, young woman. Man, I found freedom. There's no God. There's no somebody that can hold you to account. You're going to really be free. You're going to be totally free. I'll never forget there was silence on the radio, and this girl said, Madeline Murray here. Three years ago, I had that freedom. I was the leader of a group of girls in my school that we did anything we wanted to sexually. We cursed our teachers out. We drank on the weekends and all during the week. We took all kinds of drugs, anything imaginable. And I want you to know that I was flunking out of school. I was in and out of retention. I started to have a record with the police constantly harassing me. And I want you to know that my life, you know what? But last year, a year, about a year and a half ago, the man that you're debating, I heard him speak over the radio one night when I was at the bottom of my life on zero. And I heard him say at the end of the program that Jesus Christ loved even me. As much as I had messed everything up, Jesus loved me. And he told me about Jesus dying on the cross for my sins. And he told me about Jesus rising in from the dead. And I want you to know, Madam Mero here, that I accepted Jesus Christ into my life. She said, I want you to know that I'm getting ready to graduate. I've now gotten my average good enough to be able to go to college next year. The police are not on my tail. In fact, some of them have become my friends. I've been able to lead some of my gang members, former gang members of the Lord Jesus. And then she closed by saying, I'll take bondage to Jesus Christ any day to the kind of freedom you want to give me. That's wisdom as a young girl, a young woman, crying out in the marketplace. And that's what I want you to do. I'm so proud of you when I see you and you're totally unashamed of the wisdom of God. As a mom and dad, one of the reasons why that I do what I do is my mom and dad failed in many ways. They were not perfect. But my mom and dad were totally public, absolutely public, about their relationship with Jesus and their commitment to wisdom. What wisdom does next, so we need to go public. Mom and dad, if you want to influence your kids, if you want your kids to live for Jesus, you want them to live according to the life of wisdom, then you got to start doing it in every area of your life. No secret service Christians. 
Christians that are crying out in the marketplace. They're in the malls, they're in the courtrooms, they're in the schools, they're in the universities, they're in the doctor's offices, they're in the cement plants, they're making cars, they're doing anything you can imagine. They're invading their society with the wisdom of Jesus, who's the embodiment of God's plan. What does wisdom say? Look what she says. We have her appeal in verse 15. She says, how long will you naive ones? There's our first class of fool. That's where most of your children are. They're open-minded, naive kids. That's okay. They're inexperienced. Don't cut them down for that. Your goal as a parent is to help these young, inexperienced, naive kids that are open-minded to all kinds of influences. You want them to be committed. You want them to become committed Jesus followers. Young people have decided, we're going to go with a life of wisdom. We're going to follow Jesus. And that's the appeal. But it says, how long will you naive ones love your naivety? One of the things you need to challenge your kids about is, how long are you going to listen and be open-minded to all kinds of screwed-up ideas? And then you need to debate with them. You need to talk with them. You need to be communicating with with them about cause and effect, which we're going to see in just a minute. The next two classes of fools are two fools you need to watch out. You need to watch out for these attitudes in your kids, and you need to watch out for these attitudes in, in myself and yourself. And there are two attitudes. One is scoffer that says that we need to watch out. How long will you naive fools love your naivety? But how long will you mockers delight in mocking? And I'm going to use a stronger word. How long will you scoffers delight in scoffing? One of the major characteristics of this fool is in 2124. It says arrogance, pride, self-sufficiency. Scoffer is his name. The scoffer is someone that believes they know better than anyone else. And they're a person that, that always has an edge to them. In fact, we kind of go through periods in life. I remember when I was a kid, we went through a period where I was raised in the East Coast where if you could say the really cool, mocking, sarcastic thing, that was the big thing. That was the end thing. That's this characteristic. In our culture, you'll often find this person in the university, like maybe your first day of class. I've heard kids tell me this. They'll go to a religion class, and the, and the religious teacher will say, you know, how many of you believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God? And some little, you know, Bible church kids squeamishly puts up their hand, their hand and says, any of you have a Bible? The professor says, oh, let me get that Bible. And they take the Bible, they hold it up and say, see this book right here? How many of you believe this is the Word of God? How many of you believe that this is inspired? How many of you think this is the distinctive book and, and it really tells you the truth? I want you to know that this book isn't any different from a bunch of other religious literature, like the Quran. Like, like several other religious books and the books of the Eastern mysticism and all that. And they'll go on and say, and then they'll throw the Bible back to the kid and say, I want you to know that by the end of this semester, you won't revere this book any more than you revere a lot of other classical literature. What you don't know as a freshman in, high, in, in university, when your professor has a nice turtleneck on and a nice blazer and he's got a nice beard and his hair is just exactly right and he looks like the epitome of wisdom, what you don't know is he was probably raised right where you are. He was probably raised in a good Southern Baptist church or a good Bible church. And he rebelled against it. And he went away to university and thought he had all kinds of really cool ideas, new ideas. And he probably sinned a little bit, like was a little bit immoral, maybe a lot. You'll probably find out that he's been in and out of several different marriages. And now he's fighting with his parents. He's fighting against those that were authority figures because that's what scoffers do. They fight against authority. They always are know-it-alls. But when you're a freshman and 18 years of age, you don't know all that stuff. So you get captivated. You get pulled in, and this person seems so with it. I want to challenge you to think about where is this going to end up? 
And it says, scoffers, how long are you going to delight in your scoffing? Then the final class of fool, it says, how long will you morally complain? And the word there is, is a word that means to be like insensitive, like morally dull. It's just like religious things. How many of you know some people that, that the Bible and God and Jesus Christ just doesn't connect at all with them? I mean, they're into Wall Street stocks, and they're into travel, and they're into having a nice house. They're into their latest BMWs. They're just not in to Jesus. Anybody know anybody like that? That's this person. It, it's an idea that this person is just a secular materialist. It says, how long will you mockers delight in mockery, and how long will you fools hate Knowledge. And the word that's used for fool is a person that is like a, a secular person that just lives for material things. It's like you just don't have any spiritual connection with them. In Proverbs, there's four classes of the fools. There's one that's an open-minded, naive fool. They're like at the top of the slide. Then the fool starts mocking, starts being sarcastic, starts laughing at things that are sacred. A mocker still cares. Like a university professor that's mocking the things of God, don't get discouraged about that. In fact, that's a time to really pray for your professor or pray for your child or pray for your friend. When they're teasing you, when they're mocking you, they still care. Because that's why they attack you so strong. Because the Holy Spirit's working in their heart and they're concerned about this. So rather than getting intimidated by the mocker and their pride and their arrogance, their overweening pride, you need to hang in there with them because that means the fact that they're teasing you and, and sarcastically cutting you down, that means the Holy Spirit's working in their heart. But if they don't respond to the voice of the Holy Spirit, then they slide a little bit farther and then you get the person that you can talk about spiritual things, it just doesn't, nothing ever happens. They don't argue with you. They don't fight with you. They, it's just like grabbing for, for air. It's kind of like eating, you know, cotton candy. There's just nothing there. And then that can slide into the fourth class of fool, which is the committed evil person, the impenetrable block, who's not going to listen ever. The good news in this verse is that wisdom's still calling out to the naive fool, to the young person that needs to learn, needs to make a commitment. Wisdom is still crying out. She's still proclaiming to the scoffer, and she's still crying out to the, the morally insensitive business person or secularist that just doesn't care about spiritual things. Wisdom is still hanging in there, and I want you to hang in there with your friends, and I will hang in there with you, and I'm going to hang in there with your friends because none of us ever know when wisdom might come to live in someone's life, and we might have the Holy Spirit work in their life. That's the neat thing about serving Jesus. But I want you to notice something in this verse. This verse, wisdom points to the person's affections. How long will you scoffers delight? How long will you naive ones love? What your heart is, what you delight in, what your affections are. As moms and dads, that's where you want to be looking at your kids. What do they delight in? What do they enjoy? What do they love? And that'll tell you where they are in the spectrum. Are they committed to Jesus? Are they committed to scoffing? Are they committed to being open-minded and naive? Are they committed just to being secular and, and just not involved in spiritual things? You'll find that by the music they listen to. You'll find that by the books that they read. You'll find it by the friends they run with. And if you're a young person, you do evaluate that. If you love Jesus, you hang around with people that love Jesus. If you don't, then you turn away from him. You say, well, Dave, what's the big deal? So what if I'm a scoffer? So what if I'm a moral dullard? Look what wisdom says, and this is the law of consequence. She said, if only you would have responded to my rebuke. 
in verse 20, uh, 23, he said, if only you would have listened to my, my rebuke, if only you would have responded to me, in other words, I would have poured out my heart into you. Wisdom says, and this is just like Jesus saying, if you'll listen to me, I'll come into your life. I'll change your heart. I would have made, made known my thoughts to you. My prayer for every one of you is that you'll receive Jesus inside your life. He's the embodiment of wisdom. And wisdom is saying, if you would have only responded to me, I gave you an invitation. If you would have just responded to me, I would have taken up residence in your life and I would have embodied wisdom. I would have changed your heart. I would have changed your core, which is what we're after. But notice this case is a very sad story. It says, but you didn't. But since you rejected me when I called and, you, and no one gave heed when I stretched out my hand, since you ignored all my advice and would not accept any of my rebuke, I will laugh at your disaster. I will mock when calamity comes. When calamity overtakes you like the storm, when disaster sweeps over you like a whirlwind, when distress and trouble come over to over, overwhelm you, then you will call to me. You'll call to Lady Wisdom, but I'm not, I will not answer. You'll look to me then, but I will, you will not find me. Why? Because you hated the knowledge I tried to communicate you. You did not choose to fear the Lord. You didn't choose to reverence the Lord. Since they would not accept my advice and spurn my rebuke, the, get this, and this is the law of consequence. Then God says, well, I'm going to zap you. I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to jump into your life, and I'm going to hit you over the head with a hammer. That's not what God says. Look what God says. You will eat the fruit of your own ways. You will be fruited with the fruit of your schemes. For the tendency of naive young people to turn away from the path of wisdom and the self-sufficient complacency of those that are morally foolish, it will destroy them. This is what it's saying. This is a, we close this. is very important. Proverbs is not saying that if you come to Jesus, say, Jesus, I want you to come into my heart, that Jesus will say, sorry, I'm not going to come into your heart. That's not what it's saying. Because wisdom is not equal to Jesus. Wisdom is one of the characteristics of Jesus, but not totally Jesus. In fact, I want to assure you, you might have lived a totally foolish life, and you can still come to Jesus. But I want to tell you something else. If you lived a totally foolish life, it can be too late to live according to a skillful blueprint for living. Remember I told you about Gail running the streets? When I met Gail, I was working on my doctoral dissertation on Hosea, and Pam, a harlot in Dallas, called me up and said, I got a friend that really needs to see you. And a few minutes later, about a half an hour later, Gail and Pam sat in my office. Gail was pockmarked up her sleeves. There was total evidence of her shooting heroin into her veins. She told me she took out pictures. She had beautiful little girls. I mean, breathtaking little girls. And when she showed me their picture, she started crying because her own sister had to take her little girls away from her because Gail was so destructive to her little girls. And Gail said, I'm at the end of my rope. What Gail had done is she had gone out with all those lawyers and she played the fast game. Pam was a harlot, so was she. She found out she could make at that date about $250, $300 in just a brief sexual liaison. She started just doing that repeatedly. She got infected through her dirty needles with a, an, with a virus that infected the aortic valve of her heart. And it was totally diseased. That's at, at Parkland Hospital, they went in there and replaced the, that aorta. And she had just been through with that. She was recovering from it. She was starting to get back on health. And she came to me. She said, I know I'm going to go back to that lifestyle. I need help. And I told her about Jesus. In fact, I was, te I was studying the book of Hosea that I wrote my dissertation on. Hosea talks about a harlot that, that comes back to God. 
and responds to God. And I told her that story. I said, Gail, right here in Hosea, the ultimate God of the universe loves you. And he wants to come into your life. And Gail invited Jesus to come into her life that day. She connected you know, with some of the people in our church. She started growing. And I made an appointment with her with some of the older ladies. And she didn't show up about two weeks. She met a little bit, then she didn't show up. Why didn't she show up? I thought, oh, it's a typical thing, just a, fit, a human reaction, just, you know, shallow. And then I got a call from her mom saying, you need to go visit Gail in Parkland Hospital. So I went up to Gail's room in Parkland Hospital. And what had happened? Before Gail had come to know Jesus, the doctors had told her, Gail, if you get infected again, we can't put another aortic valve in. And the infection's going to go right to where we did the work because you got a weakness there. So I said, Gail, listen to us. You cannot shoot heroin. You cannot do tricks on the streets of Dallas. You're going to die. Before she came to know Jesus, she went back and fooled around with her sin once again. And what had happened, that infection had come roaring back, and she was really sick. And that's what wisdom is saying. Like wisdom, Gail came to Jesus. Jesus came to live in her life. And I believe that because of that, Jesus Jesus became her Lord and Savior, and she became a daughter of God. But on Easter afternoon, after I visited Gail in the hospital about a few days before, gave some blood because she was desperately in need of blood, on Easter afternoon, her mommy called me and said, Gail went home to be with Jesus. And I went two days later, and I did a funeral. It's one of the most incredible funerals I've ever done. Because prostitutes from all over the West End and on, on Cedar Springs and all that area, they were all sitting right there. There were pimps, there was every, and there were some godly believers all mixed in in this Methodist church up in North Dallas. And I was able to tell them the story I told you, that wisdom cried in the street. God is saying, hey, this isn't rocket science. You can understand and you can love Jesus. But if you make choices that destroy the delicate balance of the skillful way that the Lord made you, there can come a time when it's too late to live that life of wisdom. That's what it's saying. The fruit of your way will destroy you. And that's what you need to teach your kids. I want every one of our kids in the church, I want every one of you mom and dad, you live in a culture that constantly tells you you can sing heavy metal lyrics And you can shout at people and yell at them about shooting, about killing people, about being rebellious, and nothing will ever happen. But it does. One of your band members comes into the concert and blows you away, and you don't jump up because you're dead. That's what you need to understand. You live in a culture where all your friends are going to say, there's no consequences. Everyone can do whatever they want to do. This is an exception time. Gail was young. When you're 22 and you're having a blast, you got tons of money, you got really handsome guys all over your body, it looks like you're going to live forever. But I saw her die because there comes a time when we eat the fruit of our own way. So when it comes to discipline, mom and dad, this is what discipline really involves. Discipline isn't just giving a spanking. That's the last resort. Discipline is you embodying what I've taught you. Wisdom and discipline is you becoming this gentle, godly, mature person. One of the greatest gifts you can give your kids is that they can see the developing fruit of the Spirit in your life. That's the most powerful thing. Then they need to see you totally involved 
in trying to reach the gale of the world and trying to reach kids at school that don't have any parents. And I want us as a church family to get really committed. We know there's a blueprint. We know Lady Wisdom. We have met the ultimate source of wisdom, which is Jesus. And we want to be like the wise men. We're bowing before him. And then we go out into every walk of life so that we can get the gale of the world before they get infected, before they mess up their lives. And so my prayer today is that maybe there will be a young girl here that when she starts slamming the door and she starts cursing her parents and she starts yelling at them, they'll say, wait a minute, that's stupid. That's self-destructive. All my friends might think that's really cool and they might mock that, not me. I'm going to turn around and I don't care if anybody else goes with me, I'm going to live obediently, respectfully, I'm going to love Jesus. I promise you, kids, I've never met a 30-year-old that says, boy, I'm sorry I wasn't rebellious. I didn't slam doors. I'm so sorry I wasn't sarcastic. I'm so sorry I didn't just totally tell my parents they were idiots. Never met a kid, but I met a ton of kids. I've I've met a ton of kids. I've done this long enough that I now have kids that are 35, 40, some of them 45 years of age. It says, I heard you tell the story of Gail, and I listened, and that's my prayer. Moms and dads, young people, wisdom is for kids and it's for adults. And this is the essence of discipline, teaching our kids the right way to live according to God's blueprint, giving them tons of positive instruction about the benefit of doing that, and then warning them about the dangerous consequences if you don't live that life of wisdom. Let's pray. Father, take what we've shared today, change our lives through it, I, want to, I thank you, Lord, that Gail is in heaven this morning because of her commitment to Jesus. And I thank you that she is that great, part of that great cloud of witnesses that's praying and beseeching you to touch lives here this morning. I'd ask you, Lord, as we finish this series on raising kids, that we will devour the book of Proverbs as parents and as young people and children, and that we will let this wisdom transform our lives and protect our lives help Lady Wisdom to be able to say of us this morning that she reached out her hand to us, she cried to us, and we grabbed a hold of her hand and we responded to her instead of rejecting her. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter, Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065, or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. Our telephone number is 1-888-668-7884.